Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. A couple of housekeeping things. First off, I'd appreciate it if everyone could go in and give this a five-star review and comment. Those keep us up on the chain, keep us in the Google zone, and that's something that's really important uh, for me and, and the guests on this podcast because, of course, we're contributing you know, as, as time goes on, there's going to be more information. We've got a bunch of good podcasts coming up, and I'll talk about that a little bit at the end. In the last podcast, we talked about logging and sales and strategy, and we've got a lot of feedback on that one. So I appreciate people reaching out after those podcasts. So, so thank you, and, and thank you for listening. The uh, other piece of this is I am going to be doing a speaking engagement, and I wanted to kind of give that information. It's September 16th and 17th in Canandaigua, New York. It's at the uh, Woods and Wildlife Outdoor Show. It's the first year they're having a show. I'm not sure the number of people. I'll have a booth there. Myself, uh, my good buddy Josh, who's my partner, and my daughter, she's four years old, will be at that event. So it'll be fun. I'm doing a speaking engagement, I think, around 6 p.m. Friday, the 16th, and then sometime Saturday morning. And I'll have a booth again right next to the venue. The address of that uh, location is 3349 Gainham Road, in Canandaigua. I'll put it in the show notes. If you want to reach out to me, great. I'd like to meet people that are listening to this podcast or in the New York area. Please come see me and I'll, I'll be continuing to do more of those speaking engagements. All right, enough with that. Let's get into the specifics. So I got Todd Chippy back from Empire Land Management. In this podcast, we're going to freestyle talk a little bit, but we, we do have some topics that we want to get into, specifically issues he's dealing you know, with in the Midwest that are, that are pertinent and uh, I intend to debate with him a little bit on this, so it, it should be a good conversation. Hey, Todd, how are you doing? Good. How are you, John? I'm good. What's going on in your world? Mm, not too much. Battling the drought. I'm in a, a dry pocket here. I've got some of the lands that I manage just a little bit to the south and a little bit to the north have sufficient moisture, and it's a cakewalk. But right where I live and due west where I manage property and due east, we're in a pocket of dry that's driving me crazy. And uh, so we just did some things to pivot into the swamps and adjust our strategy a little bit to still make do, but it's hard to get switchgrass to grow when it doesn't rain at all. Yeah, absolutely. And beyond that, you know, you're thinking about, I guess in the arid climates, any succulents, you know, if obviously I think of places like Texas and then obviously in the Midwest, you know, your, your forb, the water contents of forbs are typically in that 60 to 90% range. We're, we're kind of going in the senescence period. So, you know, the quality of food is starting to degrade at this point. 
there's not a lot of you can do when you don't have water. The nice part about living no. in the east, you know, the east rather than the Midwest or west is we don't typically experience the drought. Uh, there's been instances of drought. It's usually short term. But generally speaking, we don't have many, you know, much drought in, in our areas. You know, respectively, you know, our food availability is pretty good. You know, the, the some of the tricks and strategies we we'll, can probably talk about, you know, in this podcast today. But, you know, that you're in those situations, you're susceptible to the weather. And, and that really you know, puts a hurting on the, the, the deer herd in, in totality. What are you seeing out there right now? Um, I know that you're, you're trying to, you're trying to come up with some ideas and concepts and, and, and be innovative, but you know, what are you seeing at least in the field, like from a, you know, I'm assuming the crops are suffering and in some areas, what are you seeing? Absolutely. Everything's stunted and uh, my, the crops, you know, from a food plot standpoint, you know, the farmers, I kind of, a strategy, a normal strategy is let the farmers get their stuff in and start feeding the deer first. So you come in behind and plant your plots and it takes some of the pressure off of them. But um, this year that worked until we got to fall plots. So it, it really stressed the switchgrass. There was just high heat and zero moisture to get it to germinate or get it to come up. And then, of course, the weeds are already stratified, so they're good to go at the first flicker of sunlight. And then, but the fall crops to get those established have been, uh, even the summer crops, I had a hard time getting the sorghum is only about eight to 10 inches. I don't know if the, we did get an inch of rain last night. So I'm hoping that's going to push those sorghum fields up. And, uh, just about the time I'm coming in to put winter rye in them anyhow. So it's been a struggle this year with the dry weather. I took a, I rigged up a trash pump. And a sprinkler system, I bought a rainwater sprinkler. It's got an inch and half intake on it and a three-eighths hole, so it can run a lot of, can run mud right through it, actually. I've been pumping water out of ditches, the water fields, and out of ponds and everywhere, and using that sprinkler gives 138 gallons a minute, and the, spring, and the trash pump goes 158. So in those areas where I've been close to a pond or a ditch or anywhere I can suck water from, I've been doing it. It's been pretty effective that way, getting alfalfa clover and my summer plots up so but some of the places are just remote from water you don't have that opportunity so you know that that goes to tell you one thing at least in some of these states where you know water is a limiting factor or you're relying on on the weather conditions you know considering your property purchase having a water source on there uh, i was talking to perry batten from jury outdoors this week and todd he's doing the same thing you're doing you know they're they're uh you know, taking water out of ponds and, you know, dumping into their food plots, you know, dumping 20, 30,000 gallons on a food plot in order to get, you know, the, the plants to grow and essentially doing something artificially in order to support, you know, the deer's nutritional demands. And, and frankly, the benefit's going to be great for them because they're going to suck every deer in from every other landowner's property adjacent to them. That said, you know, when I'm making decisions and looking at like a basic habitat need, you know, water's critical. And some oh, of these, absolutely. some of these areas that don't have water or have limited water, you're in, you know, maybe an arid area or you're in a, a bluff zone that doesn't have, you know, water sources, those things become problematic. So I think one of the consideration is the basic elements of the habitat to support, you know, nutritional demands and needs of deer are water. So consider that when you're purchasing property. And, and in this case, if you're experiencing drought, you've got somebody like Todd that can come in and leverage that water source to benefit, you know, your particular habitat. So, well, it's, it's land management 101, food, water, and cover. 
I mean, that's one leg of the stool that you have to have. So wouldn't go near a piece of property that doesn't have all three legs of the stool or being able to add the third leg of water in the form of a pond or a dike or some way to get some form of water there. Yeah. If you think about this, you know, deer, just think of the deer's physiology, just, just like humans, right? A huge percentage of their body is comprised of water. So naturally, and very similar to humans, you know, deer can go for some period of time without food, but water is essential. And I don't know the the statistical volume, you know, it could be 60%. All humans 60%. are 60% water. Infants are 80%. Uh, adults are 60. I think the adult deer are right, probably right on 50 to 60%, somewhere in that range, um, maybe mid 60s, depending, you know, depending on the, the age of the deer. As the deer start to get older, they start to lean out a little bit. They don't have the same water, the water content. So all, all good points and certainly, you know, very important to us. I mean, basically it's a, you know, water is, is, is used for metabolism purposes. And the other piece of it is it's, uh, you know, it's used to control body temperature. And that's really critical even in some hunting decisions. You know, you get into these early season hunts and it's super droughty and, you know, any water source or food source that it's available to them you know, that has a high water component is going to be utilized. And obviously that will be a strategy for you trying to select where to hunt deer. So just, just a thought there. All right, Todd, let's, let's get in, let's get into drought strategies. We talked a little bit about Perry throwing, you know, thousands of gallons and you're throwing yeah, thousands I'm of glad, gallons. So yeah, I'm glad you said that number too, because I've had a couple of people bring up, well, what if I take a 500 gallon tank and a pump and a sprinkler and that's like, um, it, I, I'll give an example. To fill my pool, like just a couple inches, I'll run my hose for hours, uh, all day long, to get my pool, 16 by 32 pool, just to come up an inch and a half. But last night we had an inch of rain, and it's up an inch. So uh, rain, uh, like the volume of water that you need to put on a plot, is not going to get done with just a sprinkler and a hose or a 500-gallon tank. I think Drury's running with a 5,000-gallon tank that they fill and spray out. So the volume of water that you need to put on a plot is a lot of water to even consider uh, getting close to just normal rain. So I'm glad that you mentioned you know, how much water Perry put on plots the other day. Yeah, and, and the uh, the idea that you could take a small tank and, and use that with the basic sp- yeah. you know, sp- spraying, So, so for foliar spraying, obviously that's a different thing. We're applying nutrients at a very concentrated level across the landscape. That's a, that's a different example. Whereas we're trying to feed the plants, you know, from a a basic consumable, something that they need to utilize in order to survive, uh, whether it's germinating or, or, you know, just, just basic survival. So you, you need that, that volume. That also brings up another point to me thinking about, you know, plant demands, uh, and, you know, depending again where you are, I talked earlier, we, we talked a little bit about fodder and we're talking about forbs and, you know, the volume of water in those particular plants. I mean, some plants are 90% water content. You know, that water, once ingested and assimilated in a deer's body, that's how they're able to limit potentially their, it benefits obviously them from a water standpoint. And then obviously there's a water retention component and metabolism component of all that. But it, it reduces their need to go to water sources. So in some cases, if you're juxtaposing, let's just say a herbaceous area that you're maintaining with high forb content, 
you may not need, depending on the time of year, you may not need a localized water source like a pond, et cetera. But I have known this for a long, long time. And I'm going to go back to 1998. I was hunting with my father on our farm and we had put in ponds. Okay. So I'm a kid. I'm, 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 I'm in my teens. Okay. And we had in place two ponds. We had beavers. We had like, we, we had helped them construct waterways. And we realized in those situations, the deer utilization in those areas were a lot higher at certain times of year. And so we started to like, you know, kind of take a keen interest in this. The other thing that kind of, kind of played out in that scenario was I remember one time my father said, Hey, you know, when I, on one of our logging trails and on, I think we had about 26 acres of, of timber, there was a uh, small opening and kind of like a little uh, water retention area. And we noticed so much utilization in that area. My dad said, you need to start hunting, you know, on that little pool of water that the deer are hitting that, you know, constantly. So back in 1998, right, a teenager, I observed this, this occurrence. And it dawned on me at that time that, you know, these water sources were critical, not knowing a lot about deer, not knowing about their, you know, their biology, it, it was critical to, to their well-being. So I add that in there is observation is the, is the criticalness in finding what deer need and demand. And those observations can happen all the time. So trying to figure out the right areas to put water is the other difficult piece of this, Todd. And I struggle with that. So I'm kind of interested well, in your take. I'm, well, I'm glad you brought that up, um, that the, the utilization of water and the fact that they don't need water, that they can get it from plants, um, which is, I think, the biggest misconception on water and white-tailed deer. I mean, South, Southern deer uh, group, they studied how much water bucks need during the rut. And it's minimal amount that they can get by. They can get it off of the plants. Water sources, though, if available, are highly utilized for a number of reasons. One, it is still a refreshing drink of water. Two, they smell. Deer's world are based, all animals are based on smell, especially deer. So it smells like every doe that's been there. It smells like every buck that's been there. It's like going down to the local bar and seeing who's been there. And that's the other draw to a water source because raccoons, fox, coyote, everybody's been there and they can tell the health, they can tell everything that's going on by visiting that water source. So um, part of the draw is not just, they're so, just like a food plot, a water source is not something that's so attractive. A deer is going to risk its life and walk in when you didn't use best management practices getting into your stand and, and scent control and all of the above. But they are highly attractive when placed, like you said, in the right spot and maybe with a licking branch by them or some other attractants by them. It's another adjunct to your hunting tools that you can use. And I, I have great success. I mean, I put in ponds between ponds. I put in a dr earth blind. I'm a dealer for earth blind water holes. I like them because they can, uh, get out of the pond wildlife that nothing dies inside. I just put one in for a guy had a regular cattle tank and a rabbit died in it. Um, couldn't get out the critter stick. I use those. I just put one in literally a hundred yards from a pond and a half hour after I left, the guy had a buck on one of them and the other one had a whole uh, herd of does on it. They just move right in. It becomes an instant point of interest, something to drink, starts to smell like deer and every other wildlife. And it's a big draw. So just like the three legs of the stool, food, water, and cover, you need 
with the with that water source, I like to put it. I use this example: if you're selling hot dogs on one corner and a guy's selling root beer on the other corner, and I can offer hot dogs and root beer in the middle, where's everybody going to be in line? And that's why I put them right by the edge of food plots, um, transition areas where everything they already want to go there to get the food. It only makes sense that they're going to stop right there and drink from that pond because it's available and it's convenient. Todd, I, I want you to be very specific in something, and I don't mean to cut you off, but you know yeah. the earthblind waterholes or ponds that, that you're using right now, and I think they the shape of them, the the contour, yeah. the coloration, the depth, the size, like text texture, texture. Can you kind of go into the what you see as the benefit? I know you talked just quickly about you know dead rodents well, etc yeah well the quick the quick at the sharp edges on the cattle tanks that people bury um uh, mice squirrels rabbits critters get inside of them and they can't get out and then they drown and then they rot inside of the tank and now you've got this bacteria you've got the stench and you got a rotten animal in there and sometimes in a remote remote area so now you got to scoop it out with a bucket you don't want to dump it right next to the tanker. It's going to just smell like death and actually repel other things other than bringing coyotes and, and uh, birds. So you have to haul it away, dump it somewhere else. It's a complete hassle. And I find that more and more people always tell me, yeah, before this, I had this die. I just installed a 250-gallon earth blind pond for a guy who had a rabbit die in his. So that they are the sides are angled and textured. And you can, it has a lip on it, so you can bury it down the ground so it will self-fill with rain. I fill them with the, the big totes, and then anything that gets in it can get right back out of it. Um, so I've never had anything so far die in one of them. And then additionally, the complaints that people get are, how do you keep the water from getting stagnant? And uh, I was thinking about this. You and I talked about in the past. My swimming pool sits out here, and deer come every night and drink out of it. I see the tracks up on the concrete. I see the stuff, the deer coming around. I start thinking, well, if they're drinking chlorinated water, why in a pond? So I I looked, I did a Google search, and sure enough, for cattle tanks, because cattle are ruminants as well as deer, you can use one half to one ounce per 50 gallons of water of chlorine bleach. And it will keep it clean and it won't hurt any more than that. It could be harmful to the deer. But so you put that in and it keeps them from getting stagnant and stops slime or algae or anything growing on them. And uh, it's a game changer for, for ponds out in the wild. Todd, great example and, and great, you know, observation on your part, just like we were talking about earlier, of, you know, the importance in 1998, me seeing water, the significance in a deer's life and you taking this basic example of a pool and saying, well, how can I keep something clean? Because my biggest gripe has been with water holes over the years is most of my clients will not take that water hole, drain it out and clean it. Uh, they will not take yeah. the time to do that. And then it becomes stagnant and useless. All right. I yeah. want to go into an actual, like, you know, a, a practical scenario here. So, you're making some decisions. Let's say you have areas of, of decent topography where there's runoff or maybe there's a resident stream, but it's not significant. But you're filling up these water holes in these specific areas. And a lot of times it's on a travel pattern or, you know, it's juxtaposed next to, you know, you're saying a food source or even a hunting location for that matter. And we talked about the lip and, you know, using a, using the local water to be a resource. Are you more times than not 
trying to, let's say if there's running water in an area, uh, and I do this a lot with clients, is I'm, I'm trying to create small ponds, natural ponds. Uh, yeah. Would you also, you know, just let's say you don't have, you know, you're, you're digging out an area and, and maybe there's not a clay-based soil. It's a, it's maybe it's a, a, a silty soil or a sandy soil. Um, what are you doing in those situations to kind of create a pot or using an earth blind in those scenarios? So to fill, fill up this, this trough essentially, and then, you know, water eventually flow out of it. What, what's your strategy there? Well, first I look at the, the big, the macro look at like, where do I want this? How do I want the deer flow? Am I changing the deer flow? Because on many properties, People say, well, I have water. Great. Where, my first question is, where is the water? Well, it's the opposite of where your food is and the opposite side of the bedding. So you can literally change the flow of your herd by instead of a deer getting up out of bed and going to get in a drink during the day um, and at night, going first to the water, the natural water source and then coming out to the food um, well after dark. By having available water, that's why I talk about the, the hot dog and the root beer on each different corner and the hot dog and the root beer together in the middle is you can get your flow, the deer flow going the right direction because they discover the water source and um, they move out that way. So once I look at the big picture, where do I want this? How do I want the deer flow? Then I get more of a micro location. Okay, I want it right in here. And then I literally look at the, it's going to go in this 50 yard range or this and then i'll look at the land and see like is there a dip right here is there a little bit of a funnel here how does this work and then i look up and use the topography like this is hidden by a hill or a tree in a bush so you have access around get into this stand you'll be able to see it from a gun stand back here but the deer won't see you process of elimination and then find x marks the spot and punch it in so we look at the terrain obviously is the major driver and obviously you kind of just identify locations specifically and using the location to be the identifier, you know, for where you can hunt them or, or where they're, they're naturally going to want to, you know, transition through. I'm wondering, you know, and this is, this is what I do. Uh, and I'll just, just give you the question yeah. I was going to answer. I'm looking at the topography features, specifically the soil type as my next driver and the related water content or water resources in that area to drive where I'm going to put it. Cause preferably I'm using kind of the natural resources. Like I'd rather go in there with my bucket, you know, take some uh, localized clay, kind of pack it in, build my own little pond. That's generally what I would do. At least that's what I recommend to a lot of clients. That's not yeah. always the case in uh, certain landscape types. And in, in my own personal landscape type, that is not the case in a lot of those elevated areas. So I'm right. going to use a pond in those locations. So that's that's just kind of my, excuse me, like an earth line pond. I'm going to kind of use one of those or likely use one of those in those those particular locations. That's kind of the discriminator for me. You know, what does your natural setting provide you or offer you to do? And then alternatively, if it doesn't, then you use that as a resource. And I like a couple things with that particular earth line pond or, or water, water trough is the fact that it is textured. And its look is so naturalized that it, it doesn't it doesn't stick out like a sore thumb, and I think that's a it's a consideration because it I think a lot of times deer are alarmed by things that are not naturalized in their environment. They come accustomed to them, but they takes a long time. And your example yeah. earlier is you punch those in, and next thing you know, you got pictures of the deer, you know, thirty minutes later on that water hole. So that's I think yeah. that's pretty incredible. They work great. Yeah, they they work great. So Todd, if you could. 
I guess, make a decision uh, about the number of water holes on a property because guys ask me all the time, how many water holes should I put on on the property? (laughs) And that's such a loaded question because your example earlier, you're trying to pull them from another location, potentially, you know, you're, you're, you've got conflicting point of views. You, you may already have water on the property, but is that water in the right location? And the ideal situation is it's in this kind of transition area headed to maybe a food source or headed maybe to another bedding area. Uh, You could be hunting in between a barbell necessarily, and you may have a a water hole in between those. And it it becomes a a social point like you talked about earlier. And again, that's, that's great for, for deer movement. It enhances the movement more, more than likely. Yeah. Yeah, It becomes a a focal point, like a tree point. So like a a tree koi, you know, putting a tree out in there and hanging a grapevine off of it near a stand uh, with an auger, same thing with a water hole. And really that depends on the topography. Um, I, now let's see, I just put in, this is a duck hunting place and I just installed two of them and he wants a third one because of the way the hills are, you can get away with a third one, but they're drawing deer so well that, uh, he just wants one by another stump line that we, uh, that I installed. So we're going to go ahead and put another one in out there because it's just, uh, it's getting the deer near the blinds and putting them in more of a focused area where, where they have opportunity and, and can observe them. So, yeah. Um, well, let me bring up another point, and this is something that I've observed. So there's there's really no data on this. Is looking at two two things, right? The deer's natural state and it's in its environment. Meaning, if it's in a natural state where it's it's undisturbed, how long do they spend time at those water holes? That could be a judgment of how calm your deer are, how um, limited pressure or, or issues of predation, all those type of things play into you know looking and observing. So a water hole could kind of be. Uh, tell the tale. It can kind of give you information about your deer's psychological state. And that's that's another thing I think people should start paying attention to. How long are they spending at the water hole? I don't know right. a deer will put its head down for about 30 seconds, sometimes a minute, but very rarely is it over a minute. They're already back up. They're looking around. And so you're starting to observe each deer's own personality in that environment and starting to assess kind of you know, how they're socializing, you know, the, the natural benefit of that water hole is again, it's, it's a, it's, it's a location where you can take some, some camera data. That's really important for, for people trying to inventory deer and also trying to assess, you know, their deer's, you know, uh, psych, psychological state. Cause I think that's, that's part of it and a little tangential topic. But that's a real thing. Are minerals legal in New York rehunt? Can you put out minerals? Uh, no, you can't, unfortunately. Yeah. See here in, um, so here either, However, there's a, a physician and his son in Minnesota that came up with rack water. It's called, if you, if you Google rack water mineral system, it goes into the water. Um, it's legal here in Wisconsin. It's legal in Minnesota where you can't use other minerals because there's no attractant in it. And I really like it because you put it in the water hole, the deer are getting the minerals. This is very soluble. Um, it, it's not like some of the other stuff in the past that clumped up inside of a water hole. The part I like about it is you put it in the water hole, the deer get the minerals every time they drink, whether they want them or not. It's illegal because it's not an attractant. They're going to drink the water anyhow. There just happens to be mineral in them. And the mineral you put in the beginning of the year, it's just like a cup of water that you leave out overnight. It, the minerals, the water evaporates out, but the mineral sticks to the sides. So you don't have to keep replacing the mineral once it's in the, in the pond. Uh, I get about a year, a year out of it. So I would check, you know, regulations or call local warden if it would be legal in New York. But I'll tell you what, this is, uh, it was a real game changer for me when I found this guy. And uh, 
I carry his product. Um, sold, I'm sold out again, but um, you can look him up online. It's and he's on Instagram too. Is Rack H2O R C R A C H2O Rack or just Rack like a Rack on a Deer Water. Real good guy and uh, good product. That's a good thought because I think a lot of people, you know, in some areas where you can use mineral, um, you know, it's obviously you know beneficial to the deer. People are using that as an attractant. And we were just talking about earlier, taking camera data. In this case, if you can, well, geez, Todd, I know guys have put Kool-Aid, punch. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you've Gatorade, yeah. Gatorade. I've seen guys do that. I mean, there's been, yeah. but, but I like the fact that you're, you're adding something that has more mineral content and, and obviously a benefit to the deer. So uh, great idea. Uh, rack. Yeah. Vitamins, it's got vitamins and uh, all the, all the minerals in it. And I really like it. So the biggest thing for me, and I, I hear this, I'm going to shoot this guy down real quick. Cause there's a, there's a guy that I've listened to before that's talked a lot about water holes and, and his preferences. And, and I like kind of the natural pond settings. You can make them large yeah. enough. Again, I mean, those are ideal. The the succulent or the, the type of vegetation that exists in those areas, particularly yep. riparian zones. I mean, you're starting to look at just water in general in the landscape. How do you manage, you know, the vegetation around those? Usually those areas have the highest mineral content. And, you know, there's a major benefit to the deer that's a major attractant. I mean, people a lot of times think that the deer are naturally attracted to the water specifically and it's actually the food a part of the water i mean it can be even the algae or the the uh the plant life that's existent around those um i can think of a bunch of different plants that i've observed over the years where deer are consuming these because of, particularly in drought situations in the summertime and then we get into hunting season and a lot of these you know the forbs have now senesced and you don't have you know the forb availability across the landscape and by the way there's still food sources in and around these water sources that are, are highly attractive to deer. And people are always like, well, it's the water. It's, well, it's, it's water as a resource that becomes valuable to the plant life. That's usually number one. Number two is the water hole. And you, you've seen a lot of these videos where you've got this water hole and this deer's, you know, running around. It's, 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 it's been essentially brought it out and, and it, it puts its whole body in in one of these areas i've seen that i've seen them dip their heads in i mean it's incredible because they're just they're short that particular resource and they need to take advantage of it temporarily to continue onwards particularly during the the phones well i do so here in wisconsin you dig what are called out not ponds but they're called uh, wildlife scrapes um they're legal You, uh, you you don't go down more than three feet and the whole idea is it fills up in the spring and then towards fall, the water goes down, the duckweed hits, and then the following, it's really good for, for uh, ducks to fall in spring again. A lot of times in a wet year, they hold water in the middle or they'll be full, like, around now, they start to go down. So all of a sudden, there's one foot on the bank, and then there's two foot of the bank. And generally speaking, nothing grows on that one or two feet. What I like to do is take, uh, and I, I just, I have, multiple properties including my own set up this way right now is i just take fertilizer around it and then um oats uh millet buckwheat brassicas and they grow that is such nutrient rich soil that it grows really fast around those ponds and now it does a number of things it cools the soil because it comes it cools the soil it takes away that lip where the ehd the midges live that's where they get in the deer's nose is in that hot soil right by the edge. 
But if you can get, if you can keep in front of that with brassicas and oats and uh, all those things, keep the soil cool and it keeps those bugs down. It gives cover for frogs to eat those bugs. And then the deer just go crazy for it. And I really like when the oats head out, those I'll put in. So as the pond's going down, it's a foot down, it's two foot down, it's three foot down. I keep adding. So the plants are germinating at different times and in different states of maturity. And then you should see the wildfowl go crazy over that the following spring. The leftover bulbs that are down in there and the seeds from the oats pulling up winter wheat. It's a great tactic. It's a great strategy for any time of pond or wildlife scrape management or even a pond that's dug normal you know, on a dry year. It's really a fun practice to do. And it really cuts back on EHD by inhibiting those midges from being able to proliferate. Great example and great opportunity for people, you know, if you have the ability to kind of resource and put one of those in, maybe with your loader, you know, with your tractor, you, you may be able to do that, you know, pretty quickly, even right now for that matter. So, yeah, and that's all handwork. I mean, that's not, you can't, I mean, uh, as far as the planting and the fertilization, that's all. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, that's yep. all just handwork, which is kind of fun, but it really, I mean, that's a huge impact and it's a really a safety thing for your deer herd for, for EHD in these drought years when it rears its ugly head. It's a good way to fight back and you'd be surprised how fast those plants germinate in that warm, moist soil right next to the water. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so this is this, this is a similar concept where I was talking about earlier with these, these, uh, Beaver streams, or what do they typically yeah. call those? The, the beaver offshoots, we, we call. Them. And yep, we, we, were, ponds, yeah. we were we were taking advantage of those across these like fingers in in a land setting, and then everything adjacent to that now became more nutrient rich, more food availability for the deer. And guess what? The deer were in those areas significantly more than oh, yeah. than, than normal. And you know, the next thing I want to kind of just bump over to is, you know. When when does a water source become most valuable? And, and a lot of times, like we we keep I keep hitting on this, you know, water becomes a resource that that is is a necessity throughout an entire you know life cycle of a deer, even in the winter months. Now you'll find mm-hmm. in areas in the north where there's a high snow load, maybe there's um, a lot of cold temperatures, so everything's iced over. You'll find that they do resource water. What you do find is they're going to resource areas of water that are not flowing significantly. Um, the yeah. water temperature a little bit warmer. Now, I'll just give my property a little bit of a boost here because the water is very constant in uh, a bunch of different areas. So in the summer months, this is ground spring water. It's very, very cold and it becomes a major resource. These areas that I've kind of carved out uh, adjacent to them, I've, I've created little tributaries and those become great resources for deer early season. The water temperature is very constant and the flow is very constant, but those tributaries that come off that water source are utilized just as much in the winter months. So there's just enough flow into those little, we'll say pockets, like small, just small pools of water adjacent to those. The temperature is a little bit warmer, but it's not necessarily able to freeze because it's got a little water flow. That's a little trick for people. In addition to that, there's some naturally occurring in, in my area because of the specific vegetation. You know, there's some naturally occurring water sources that are a little bit warmer just because of the type of soil that's there. Its thermal conductivity is a little bit different. And and those are like minute differences that, that create kind of a, 
an attraction level for deer because very, very cold water certain times of year may not be utilized uh, uh, as much as they may use resources like shrubs, uh, which in, even in the winter months, there's a component of water in those you know, those shrub tips, even in the stem, the, the, the twigs of that particular plant that the deer resource. the evergreen, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you'll also notice, you know, in, in their urine, you'll, you'll see the di- dehydration levels increase over time because the amount of browse is, is not available at, at the rate that they need to, to survive. So deer go in that starvation mode, but they go in conservation mode as well. So there's there's something to consider uh, there. And, and you can resource, you know, your water sources to make them more uh, available and palatable to deer during certain times of year. So think about that as an example. That's that's uh, kind of small bean stuff, but it, it can make the difference of attracting a deer on your, your property. Well, and additionally, you know, in the drought, the water, so combating water, so to pivot for the upside of a drought, got some different properties that I manage that reed canary is always a problem. And usually what happens, you get a couple dry years, or you get a couple of wet years and canary gets in, either the farmer can't get to the area to cut it, uh, cut the hay, the reed canary takes over, it smothers out the native vegetation, it tips over, lays down, now it can't dry out, and it becomes just a useless moonscape of tipped over reed canary that's too wet to allow anything else to grow. On years like this, is a perfect opportunity to get in and cut the reed canary, um, you can, as it comes back, then you spray it off with Roundup, put brassicas in it, or put, um, sometimes I'll drill or broadcast beans before I cut soybeans so that when it comes back, I could hit it with Roundup. That following year, it'll come right back in to cattails. You can really fight it off. And it gives you an opportunity to use some other method that you use to kill the grass, the canary grass when it comes up with a pre-emergent so that the cattails and the warm season grass that come in and you can really rebuild your wet meadow back to native vegetation. That's good for deer, fawning, pheasant, turkey. Um, so I've got those going on on quite a few different properties that I manage right now. So kind of switched from we're not going to get our summer food pots, but I can dive down into some marshes and places that, that you can't get access to and rehabilitate some wet meadows. Yeah, and eventually over time, the natural vegetation that, that rebounds in those areas is going to be more valuable to deer, particularly from a food source standpoint. So, you know, that's planning ahead really for you, Todd. Oh, absolutely. Great. Yeah, that's, yeah. Great idea. Well, the last thing I kind of want to talk about, and we're, I think we're kind of at the end of this, is there, there's a lot of things to look at here and when it comes to the benefits of water in the landscape. And, and that's kind of how we started this conversation. And then we, we kind of talked about how to preserve water, or in this case, you know, we just talked about, you know, things that, that you benefit from when, when water, you know, isn't on the landscape and improvements that you can make. So, you know, last thing is, is kind of like how do deer lose water? And it's pretty basic, right? They urinate through fecal matter and then Obviously, they exert it; it vaporizes out of their mouths, and you'll you'll see this a lot during the rut period, where deer's running yeah. around, and you'll see you know vapor coming from its mouth uh, as it as it starts to dissipate the heat, and that heat loss, and obviously the water related to that heat loss is is critical. And then they're in um you know they're they're they become in survival mode after they go through that major loss. I mean, part of the body weight loss is you know they they can't retain the water that they presumably you know consumed or supported earlier uh, earlier in the season so you'll also notice to the rot the the type of plants that they're consuming may have higher water content 
That's another strategy for deer hunting. And so you'll notice deer existing kind of in these remote locations. To Todd's point earlier, just a couple of minutes ago, this made me think about this is, you know, areas of high water retention, uh, swamps, those type of areas, they're going to reside very heavily in those areas. Now it's, it's obviously contingent on, on the environment that they're, they're living in, that the type of temperatures, et cetera, and their, their body's physiological state, um, where they locate themselves. But that kind of plays into the overall strategy of, of hunting, you know, a particular landscape. The type of food that deer are eating are obviously very, very important. You know, that, that is inversely, I guess, beneficial because if you think about it, at the end of the day, you know, the water that, that the deer consume, like the surface water that we were talking about in these ponds, it's really inversely proportional to the, the water that's in their food content. So they'll choose one over the other, obviously, based on the circumstances. And like I said earlier, generally speaking, they're going to go to the food source before they go to the actual water in that example earlier, you know, the surface water for that matter. So I just want to play that into the equation. Again, that's why I prioritize the food sources in a, in a plant scenario being more of a consideration for me. And again, being in the East, I don't experience the same things that, that Todd may necessarily experience in the Midwest or even further out West. So that perspective is going to be a little bit different just naturally because of the environments that I'm used to. I don't know if Todd, that makes sense to you. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I think the Midwest, Iowa, Kansas, you know, all this whole area is, is different than your area. And, and uh, I think the water source, I mean, a good analogy that you're going to see when you, if you don't have water and you put in water, however you decide to do it, is just what you saw during um, your early season when you see the fawns playing in the water and deer sticking their head down in it and they're playing around. When rut comes around, deer, they also lose a lot of moisture through uh, expiration, just breathing. So they're running hard during the rut. They lose a lot of water through breathing. They get dehydrated. Those ponds, I mean, one of the biggest bucks I ever shot was during pre-rut and the does, you know how they're acting silly and giddy like a group of girls and you just know there's a buck coming out. You can tell by the way they're acting and they came right to the water hole and then I heard the grunt behind them. And that same type of plane that you see in early season with does and fawns is you can get in a rut vortex right there. That buck's going to chase around and around that water source and keep that doe right up by it. She stays right by it and um, it just becomes like, I always call it a rut vortex when you end up right in the middle of that chase. And that will happen, can happen, and will happen quite a few times when you have that little water source. However you decide to do it during the rut, it can be pretty exciting. Now, Todd, just I know that we're at the end of this, but it just brought up another point because we, we've kind of talked a little bit about design and layout, but more so on the traction side of it. I mean, ponds a lot of times are used as a resource to eliminate movement. And you've seen that, you know, multiple times. So what are, do you have any strategies around, you know, ponds being a source where obviously you can dump your scent into, um, it becomes kind of a, a, a limitation. Funnel. Yeah. Funnel. Um, what, what do you typically try to consider in those situations? Let's say you have a, a pond already resource on the landscape. Obviously it depends on its location and how you can leverage it, but let's say it's not in yeah. the ideal location. Do you kind of use it as a dead zone? Cause I, I've used it many, used them many times as dead zones. Yeah, then if you can, what you want to do is enhance the vegetation around it towards uh, with willows and cattails and wherever you can to create a, a bedding area. Um, they love to bed by it, so then that's your preserve. Your no-goes, your dead zone, however you want to refer to it, so then you just adapt the rest of your strategy to you know where they're bedding, 
how do I get as close as I can to that or in between them and their food without spooking them? Yeah, simplifies that, it. Yeah, yeah. Simplifies it. yeah, and that's a good idea because I think, you know, we could use it as a potential attractant or it could be a detriment depending on, you know, other features that are set up on the landscape. So it's not always one size fits all and you can, you can repurpose, you know, particular areas to benefit your hunting per se. So I figured. Yeah. Well, and keep in mind, you know, that, they're going to, they're still going to drink from it. They're going to plant, they're going to do things. But if you add water out by your food source, that's going to be the focal point when they come out to that thing. Every single deer is going to come out. They're going to go check, smell who was there, smell what was there, and then go on with feeding. May drink a little bit and then they go on with feeding. It, it, people have to separate the water demand from the social aspect. There's, there's two completely different reasons that they come up to a water hole. Yeah, it's good to think about that, and it could be both for that matter. At that at that point, all right. right. Let, let me one other thing, Todd. So bigger is better. How do you feel about that? Bigger, bigger the water source, the better. Now, yeah, not necessarily. I mean, it de- depends on what you're trying to do. If I'm if you're trying to funnel deer, I want two big ponds so that I know they're going to go on either side of them or up the middle. If it's a little kill situation. 100-gallon pond is fine, 250-gallon pond maybe on a hill. Um, if it's an area where I don't want to fill it every month, you know, then I'm going to go a little bigger or I might not put it there because I don't have access. So that's how I kind of look at it. depends on what you're trying to do with it. Would you say that there's a minimum size? I know it's it's obviously it's contingent on, you know, we just talked about the weather conditions or wanting to go in and fill up those areas. Would you say there's a minimum size water hole? Depends on the depends on the use. I mean, some guys will use the fifty gallon ones, and that's fine um, in an area that it may be a stream trickling into it, or you be able to funnel um, into it easily. I guess you know by asking that question, like the fifty gallon ponds. The nice thing about the the earth blind ponds is they're low profile. You don't have to bury it at all. You can just lay it down on the ground and fill it with water. And deer can come up and drink on it because it only is about 12 inches high, yeah. which is another real benefit because I don't know how many times I showed up and someone's like, yeah, I wish that pond would but just over here because that tree's blocking it, where I tell people, put it on the ground, fill it up, and make sure you have it in the right spot. And if you want to tweak it, move it over 20 feet or something, then you can. And then once you have it right, then you can bury it. Yeah, that's a good... But yep. yeah, so it depends on the application of what you're going to, what you want that pond to do. But I mean, 50 gallon, 20 gallon, whatever you got, it's water. If you have the ability to walk out there every day and dump a five gallon bucket of water in it, then that's good enough. You know, if deer, if deer are going to use it. And I, I would say in the East Coast, in our areas where we get a fair amount of water, you're not really filling those up a lot. You're filling up usually once a year and you don't have to really go replenish it. At least it, it depends on the location and the setup and obviously drought conditions, yeah. et cetera. But Rarely am I refilling my water holes, so I just wanted to put that out there. It's just a matter yes. of maintaining them, like Todd said earlier, and he gave everybody a kind of a great strategy there. So appreciate that bit of information, Todd. Yeah, a little bit of bleach, and then I uh, always have a pool skimmer net with you for leaves in the fall. One good cleaning there, and you're set. Yeah, so Todd's running around with his skimmer and a chainsaw. That's that's, yeah. that's kind of it was funny. funny because my buddy was doing some work here. A uh, guy used to work around the fire department. And he goes, Hey, where's your pool skimmer? I got some stuff in. And I go, it's on my tractor. And then <laughs> kid, this new kid after a while, Austin, he goes, can I just ask, uh, what are you doing with a pool skimmer on your tractor? And I just started laughing. 
I said, doesn't every good farmer keep a pool skimmer on his tractor? Yeah. So yeah, I could think of a joke, but I think it's inappropriate for this podcast right now. Yeah. Um, okay, man. I think that's it. Anything else on your end? No, it's good. Good oh. luck, everybody. You probably won't hear from me again till deer hitting the ground. So yeah, good luck to everybody and have a safe hunting season. Yeah, yeah. We'll hear we'll hear from you again once uh, we get a kill. Um, we're going to save a lot of habitat stuff till kind of the later half of hunting season. We've got to kind of plan with the podcast going forward. So I'm excited to share that. It's going to be something that Steve Shirk and I are going to do together. But, you know, we've got a couple more habitat, you know, focused podcasts and then you know, we'll get Todd back on just after uh, hunting season, and then we'll start to think, you know, more about planning, implementation work, the things that we, we want to focus in on. So, hey, man, thanks. I look forward to talking to you during this hunting season, and uh, we'll always stay in touch. And I hope uh, hope your clients do well this year. Sounds good. Have fun. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, John. Take right. care. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.